Um, we've been privileged starting yesterday with Dr. Barnes' sermon to remind us that if these walls could talk, how many stories we would have heard cry out in praise of, of God, of Jesus Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit in so many people's lives. Um, we talked around the tables, I'm sure, last night and this morning at breakfast in different venues, uh, sharing some of our own life stories and pastoral ministry and special ministries. Um, we heard about the great legacy of, uh, you know, the people of Yugoslavia, we, you know, some stories that emerged from that brokenness, uh, Dr. Miroslav Volf's talk. And, and then, of course, the great legacy of, of Samuel Jordan and his many stories that go out. And then today, I was deeply moved by that remembrance service when we all had a candle and brought this, this table was covered with candles each light reminding us of a, some story of a life given in faithfulness. And then how many other hundreds, thousands of lives, life stories were touched and impacted by the gospel through those people. So we're, we're privileged to, to be here today to hear some stories from some of our, our greatest, brightest scholars here at the seminary. And I, I wanted to thank each of them for, for being willing to do this because it's a different kind of a context for, for speaking forth than from the, the lectern in the academy. This is sort of crossing the boundary into the ecclesia and the community of saints. And for that, we're, we're deeply grateful. So I wanna just say a special thanks to the Reverend Dr. Gerald Liu, the Reverend Dr. Sonia Waters over here, um, Dr. Mark Smith, and the Reverend Dr. Joy Harris-Smith who are gonna be sharing their stories. And this is how it's gonna work. They're just gonna come up one at a time and. I've been told, they've been told, that they have 10 to 12 minutes, and um, <clears throat> maybe I'll cough loudly at five and 10 minutes or so, and, um, and then we'll hear from the next person, and then at, when we're done, then there'll be a time of, of question and answer, okay? So let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your story of love and grace and mercy, and for the story of Jesus Christ that is been spoken into our lives in some meaningful way that has transformed us and caught us up in this great story of your grace and mercy for all people. And bless these professors. Thank you for their willingness to share their story now. May your spirit be upon them and encourage and inspire us all to remember that your story is indeed for all people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good afternoon. Do you mind if I am a manuscript preacher today? Dean Aloyo, where, where is he? Ah, there you are. Distinguished alumni, guests, uh, fellow faculty, staff, administrators, friends, thank you for inviting me to do what I do best, that is to talk about myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> before I begin, I, I also want to um, point out, as some of us already know, that today is the first day of Ramadan. In my worship class, I always bring them to the mosque just down the road on Route 1 uh, to visit with Imam Shebli and especially given the history of the ways in which Christian liturgy has often been used as a kind of invisible weapon um, against Muslims and 
given the headlines today, I think it's, it's good for us to just be aware of what's good about other Abrahamic faiths and allow that to inform uh, our Christian lives. My name is Gerald Liu. I'm an ordained United Methodist minister and the first American-born Asian professor of worship and preaching here at Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, <laughs> thank you. This is historically noteworthy considering that new side Calvinist preachers like Henry Ward Beecher, though an abolitionist, sermonized venomously against the Chinese. Uh, he declared, we've clubbed them, we've stoned them, burned their homes, uh, and murdered some of them, yet they refuse to be converted. I do not know any way except to blow them up with nitroglycerin if we are ever to get them to heaven. And old side titans who winced at Beecher, like our own Charles Hodge, denounced free will doctrines from the new side, and probably from Methodists too. He also championed biblical infallibility, though reformers like Luther and Calvin admitted biblical inaccuracy and contradiction as parts of deeper scriptural wisdom. In the 1920s, Curtis Lee Laws, an editor for a Baptist conservative newspaper, coined the word fundamentalism as shorthand for getting back to the basics of Christian faith. Yet PTS, historically, set the intellectual conditions for it. And now my story represents one dramatic evolution from origins like those. I'm the youngest of three sons. I was born in 1978 in Jackson, Mississippi. I grew up in Clinton, a suburb of 25,000. I'm not an immigrant. English is my first language. Uh, my parents emigrated from Taiwan. My father was born and raised there. My mother was born in China, and her family moved to Taiwan when the Communist Revolution took place. We ended up in Mississippi because my father was also a professor in educational psychology. Uh, his first job was at a place called Jackson State University. It's a historically black college and university, and he stayed there his entire career. My parents are culturally Buddhist. I converted to Christianity around the age of 11. It's a longer story that I won't get into here, um, but I do want to mention a couple of people involved in that. One was a childhood friend named Aaron Holloman. Uh, he died in uh, the 2004 Operation Iraqi Freedom, and he was a father of three. And when I was Small, I ended up at the Methodist Church because my neighbor directly across the street, a guy by the name of Greg Taylor, was the youth director there. Now, sort of returning back to my background story, as a family of five uh, in Mississippi, we were almost one percenters because Jackson is less than 0.4% Asian. It's 81% black, 17% white. Uh, Latinx, Native American, and mixed-race people combined comprise about 2% of the population. And now Clinton, my hometown, uh, is about 5% Asian, 5% Latinx, and about 1% comprise mixed-race and Native American people. It's 50% white, 40% African American. 
both majority populations, children and their parents, uh, have befriended me and harassed me for as long as I can remember. <laughs> I moved from Mississippi at the age of 17, uh, and since then I've traveled to five continents and probably over 42 countries. I've lived in Africa, continental Europe, the UK, and over six US cities. I've moved 18 times in the last 23 years. And in every place I've been called chink or jeered with choyoyoy or something like this. Um, in college, my closest Asian American friends used to heckle me for having a southern accent. As a, <laughs> as a doctoral student, um, a 19-year-old white freshman from Ole Miss who lived across from Vanderbilt University where I was doing my doctoral work shot me at point-blank range in the back of my shoulder uh, when I went to his home to tell him that his dog, his loose dog, had chased me. The, the pistol turned out to be a pellet gun. At my first full-time teaching post, I was asked to write a piece about an Asian family who had given a significant gift to the school. And when I inquired with the president uh, for more background information, he said to me quizzically, but Gerald, we, we had lunch with them just last week. And I, I had to awkwardly explain that it wasn't me, but Professor Lee. Um, at my next teaching job, a student stopped me in the cafeteria one day and amazingly said, you eat American food? At a church in Manhattan where I'm a minister in residence, a parishioner beamed to my visiting mother, your son speaks such good English. And in Princeton, a congregant uh, said as she saw me hurriedly robing for the morning service that she thought I was the karate instructor. And after I finished preaching the morning services, a retiree in that same parish uh, asked me where I was from from. And he didn't mean Jackson. What I'm trying to get at is that Christian faith can distort the love of Jesus when prejudice, conscious or not, infects what we say we believe. An American-born Asian has never taught me. I've had five Asian teachers overall, uh, one in the ninth grade, and two were comparative religion professors. Those three were Indian. Two others were Chinese language instructors. And this isn't because Asians weren't around in the Mississippi public school system or the campuses that I've attended. Uh, Asians are the most populous people on the earth, after all. Instead, I believe our public neglect displayed a misunderstanding and misapplication from other Christians of God's call to love others as ourselves. Where I was, we were expected to stick with our own kind. Our social and religious contributions suited the Asian species best, or others with slanted eyes or an Asian fetish. But, this is not just a lament, <laughs> at PTS we have a different vision of how things should be. We strive to practice what British theologian Graham Ward calls deep dreaming, deep dreaming. In volume one of a planned four-volume systematic theology called How the Light Gets In, 
uh, Ward ruminates upon Genesis 2. And he notes how Adam falls asleep, and the passage never says that he wakes up. He writes, maybe theology is a part of Adam's deep dreaming. My friends, I think why reunion brings so much joy is because we remember and celebrate that we're living the dream. Mary, Jesus, Paul, and Dorcas, and other disciples are nothing like us, but we can dream with them. We can dream with artists like Ai Weiwei, Vic Muniz, Carol Walker, poets like Nikki Giovanni, modern reformers like Martin Luther King Jr., or even theorists like Gayatri Spivak and her dreams of alterity-based learning that compels us to learn the language of others so that we can practice social and transformational charity. That sounds like a Pentecost practice to me. Drawing from their kaleidoscopic eyes and uh, excuse me, drawing from their kaleidoscopic lives and ideas, we can participate in realizing visions of God. I teach worship and preaching and minister in order to invigorate everyday people to love each other as a multicultural family of God. And I hope and pray that you share and animate a similar Christian imagination. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Reverend. This opportunity. Um, a conversation about an hour or so ago sparked uh, this thought and my uh, connection, and I'd been ruminating for a while trying to figure out how I should come and what I should say about my story. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10 in the New Living Translation reads, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white and held palm branches and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a mighty shout, salvation comes from our God on the throne and from the Lamb. As I thought about that for the past 30 minutes or so, I thought about my position here and my presence here. My presence here means that we are moving closer to that day. What I do now is also helping us to move closer to that day. Life before Princeton, in some ways, was apple pie. I was born in a military family in Germany, um, lived in North Carolina, so I know what it means to be teased about a southern drawl. I eventually moved to New York, um, where I grew up in a Pentecostal uh, church and a Pentecostal family, um, formation, um, and the Holy Spirit were something that were deeply entrenched in me. 
But there were several events um, at the point of college that really set me on my course and I think really propelled me to my standing here today. The first was that at the age of 23, I lost my mother. And the reason why I say that that is such a pivotal moment in my life because it was at the same time that I was preparing to go abroad. So actually, sort of all of this was happening simultaneously. So my faith, what I thought about life, what I thought about the world, all of those things were up for renegotiation. One of the moments that I remember that I will never forget is bringing my mom home from a chemo visit and her saying, you'd make a great teacher. I had no uh, interest in becoming a teacher. <laughs> the closest I'd become was an education seminar at Hobart and William Smith Colleges and the walk across campus at 8 a.m. was too much. <laughs> so about halfway through, I quit. There was an ad at the time that I'd graduated saying that they needed teachers. And my mother said to me, you'd make a great teacher. She saw something in me that I did not see in myself. And to appease her, I went down to the Board of Ed with no documents, with nothing, so that at least I could tell her that I tried. <laughs> Fast forward, she did pass away. And the first job that I got was as a teacher in Boston Public Schools. It felt like common sense. The principal came around and said, if I like what I see in three weeks, you'll have a contract and a job. Three weeks came around, I had a contract, I had a job. Not too long after that, I entered the New York City Teaching Fellows. And that's when God really began to work with me on my call to ministry and my call to teach. I spent the summer walking from Rochdale, uh, which is a cooperative in Queens, New York, to the Allen Cathedral to 6 a.m. prayer, and would spend time really being with the other saints. And of course, as some of you may know, 6 a.m. prayer is usually where you find the smallest group of people. But it taught me something about discipline, and it also taught me about uh, what it means to be in this Christian life. God did also confirm during that time that I was supposed to teach. And seven years after that, I entered Princeton Theological Seminary. I remember writing my essay and talking about being called to teach because when people come to seminary, most assume that they're coming to preach. But teachers are so important and integral and they don't necessarily often get a pulpit and a huge platform but they are the ones that sow the seeds, that water the soil, that tend the gardens, that help people to grow. Coming back here was not something that was completely on my agenda either. <laughs> I thought when I graduated Howard with my PhD in communication and culture that I would go into the academy to work with undergrads. And through conversation, I think initially with D. 
Dean Aloyo. Um, and then with the speech department, I found myself here. I understand what it means to be in the will of God now. Doesn't mean that it's perfect. It doesn't mean that it's easy. Somebody said that you can get tired in the work, but not of the work. I also understand what it means to stand on the shoulders of other black students who've come through Princeton Theological Seminary and other seminaries where they were one of few. While that might not seem to be very important, I refer back to the scripture that I initially read that talks about every tongue and every tribe and every nation will be there singing and worshiping our God. And everything that we do as Christians, whether we are coming back for reunion or whether we are working in our various churches or whether or not we're in regular society and, and, and teaching in public school, our goal as Christians is to work toward that day, to work toward um, that exemplar of what it means to be a covenant community. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to participate in that goal. And that's what I do here as a lecturer in speech communication and ministry. One of the goals that I like to work or I try to push is that I want people to connect head and heart. So often people come with the intellect, um, which is important to do academic rigor. But I'm sure, as you know, it's the things that pass through the head and touch the heart that make the most difference. It's not always easy, but it's necessary. And I'm thankful that I'm allowed to participate in this, um, this great work. Thank you. Good afternoon. How pleased I am to see you here, and I add, what a, what a great place to be. And look around us right now. You all spent hours upon hours in worship here, and how much it meant to you in your time. And I'm inspired to be in this place, and at the same time, for reasons that will become reasonably clear to you momentarily, for me, this is the most fraught space on campus. Now, I'm from Washington, D.C. I'm one of nine children. Both my parents had PhDs. Oh, I should, I should, I should add that my mother had the first eight children in nine years, all in the 1950s, when she also finished her PhD. Both my parents were oldest children of German-American families, both type A's, and they knew how to take charge. <laughs> Fortunately, I wasn't one of the oldest kids. I was a middle kid, a safer zone to live in. And my parents and my family were devout Catholics. So I'm, the, I'm, I'm one of two Catholics hired in the wake of Kathy McVeigh's uh, retirement, which makes us the second and third Catholics here at the seminary, to the best of my knowledge, as full-time faculty. Um, I was sent to school, six years of uh, uh, school run by the Benedictines, 
uh, in Washington, D.C. And uh, I didn't know, for years, I thought that my father was telling us a Benedictine motto when we'd finish church on Sunday, and he would say, he would say, laborare es laudare, to work is to pray. So he said, let's go outside and pray. <laughs> it, was, it was ora et labore, but I didn't know that at the time. So with that, I went off to college, to Johns Hopkins University. I was very proud to be there. I never thought I was going to get in, but I did. And I, uh, I was a fairly religious guy. And what I found on campus was the group, I don't know, really know why, but the group I was most attracted to was the group of students. We came to be the students who founded the Hopkins Christian Fellowship. Uh, I was the only Catholic involved, and it had a real impact on me. I, I admired the intensity and the commitment. I, I really did, and I still do today, even though I, I also recognize a certain distance uh, from where I was even then and I am now. But that really stayed with me because, in a way, that was my first confrontation with Scripture in a major way. When I was a kid, you know, we read some Bible stories and we heard readings in church and so on, but we didn't really read the Bible very much. I used to, when I was in graduate school in Hebrew University, uh, we used to say that, well, the Jewish students knew the Hebrew text by heart, but they weren't always exactly sure, you know, where, where it was. They might know the book. The Protestant students whom I knew, they knew chapter and verse in English. And the Catholics, we didn't know either one. <laughs> so that really stuck with me, and I, and I left Hopkins, and I went to Catholic University in Washington in large measure because I really wanted to figure out what I thought about all this. And I started taking scripture classes and all kinds of theology, and I started studying Calvin. I wandered into Calvin. I don't, I don't really know how that happened exactly. I can't quite tell you. I mean, I know what course it was. It was a wonderful course on the history of, of uh, Christian thought, wonderful course. And I was very attracted to Calvin's commentaries, and I had this great idea for a dissertation project that I would compare, I would compare Calvin's commentaries with his institutes with how he exegeted each, I mean, exegeted various scriptural passages in each of those. And that actually became a pretty hot topic later on, but I left that because as I, I figured out to really study these commentaries, I really needed to study Greek and Hebrew. And after a while, I became more interested in Scripture. And I had to decide, Calvin, Scripture. Calvin, Scripture. So I chucked Calvin, I went to Scripture. <laughs> but it, it, but I always, that always stuck with me, and it, it's always fired my, my, uh, my energy. Uh, I went on there and did the kind of classic education. I, I did a master's at Harvard Divinity School in really in biblical languages, and then off to Yale, and then a year at Hebrew University. I can tell you I never expected to be here in this place. My first job was two years at a Catholic seminary out in Minnesota, and from there I've wandered up and down the East Coast. This is my fifth full-time job. I obviously can't hold down a job. <laughs> but I had been 16 years at NYU, and I, 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 
I was, the, the prospect of this situation came across my radar. It actually wasn't my, someone else suggested, you know, you really ought to apply for this job. Someone who actually told me he wanted this job later on, a friend of mine. So I thought, well, now that's interesting because many of the most interesting Catholic biblical scholars the last 20, 30 years have been teaching at non-Catholic institutions. Raymond Brown, uh, uh, Roland Murphy at Duke, Kathleen O'Connor, a graduate of this place, a PhD here, and taught down at Columbia Seminary for decades. And I thought, I, I'm interested in this. I'm interested in doing this. And I thought to myself, if I came here, maybe I could serve better. That's all I really wanted. I just thought that at NYU I was doing great work. I thought I was doing great work. Of course I always think I'm doing great work. <laughs> but doing really great things with doctoral students at NYU. We had four just graduate uh, this week. Wonderful dissertations. But I felt that there was something more to be done in the years I have left, which is not so many years. I'm 62 now. I've been here two years, so the last decade or so of my teaching time. I don't want anyone to take that timetable too seriously. Um, but every day I come to work, I'm inspired to be here. I'm inspired by my co-faculty, and you can obviously see why already this afternoon. I'm really inspired by our students. Our students are just full of the love of God and the desire to do good in this world. Just as I expect you were and are when you came to this place and went out from this place. And I thank God every day that I was able to come here and to be part of this life. Thank you very much. In, uh, um, in, what do I do, pastoral theology. <laughs> I work in pastoral theology. I have notes, so I won't forget. So that's good, that's good. Uh, it is great to see you all and, you, and to think of all the faithfulness in this room. You know, all of the ways that we have followed God together. It's just amazing. It's such a blessing to be here. I, I, was, I was pretty much a commuter student for my PhD. Uh, I, I served a church in northern New Jersey, so I worked all day and read all night. And they tell you you should not do that, and now I know why. It was, it was definitely difficult, but I miss the community, so I, I'm envious of what you have. But now I have it on the other end to be here with, uh, with students now, and, it, and it's truly a delight. Uh, so I want to talk to you a little bit about what motivates uh, my work, and I'm, and I'm going to try to do that through uh, an object that's important to me. That actually will tell you a little something about me because my dissertation was on thinking through religious images and objects. Uh, so I've, uh, at this point, I've, I've, uh, I've moved away and I'm, I'm working on personal and political aspects of addiction. So I'm either very eclectic or very confused, one of the two. Uh, but those are some of my interests. Um, so if you went into my office and looked at the top shelf where I hide all the books that I, I haven't read yet, uh, you will find my baptismal candle. Um, I still have it. Uh, 
it is in my office for a reason. Because what I do, and what you all do, is a part of the long working out of your baptism, right? So, so my candle is yellowing with age now. Um, it still has that abstract sticker of a dove and water, all angles, like uh, the ideal 1950s stained glass window. Uh, and that, I think it's that churchiness, that, that solid ideal that might have been what first attracted me to the faith. My family immigrated from the UK when I was in kindergarten. Uh, they will still watch the royal wedding on Saturday as if we had never left. Well, I can't believe she wore that. Oh my God. So it'll be a lot of that. Uh, and we proceeded to move about uh, six times before I was in the sixth grade, uh, not counting motels and hotels and rented houses all across uh, America. So I think I was looking for a home in this baptism. And isn't that what we do for others? We help them find a home in their baptism. So I was actually baptized at 19 years old, at the end of my first year at Wheaton College. I was a new convert to Christianity, and Wheaton didn't know I wasn't baptized when I got in there. So I was a very, that's true. I hope nobody's taping that, right? So I was a very secular kind of kid in an evangelical college, suddenly a year into it, getting baptized in a very Anglo-Catholic Episcopal church. And that scene pretty much uh, summarizes a lot of my story. Slight displacement and cluelessness really went together for my story. So I was a weekday evangelical and a Sunday Episcopalian. Uh, and I think that uh, that's really uh, prepared me for teaching here because every one of my classes is like an ecumenical conference with nobody getting along, which I still think is wonderful. Just bring it on, bring it on. And, and I first learned uh, that uh, probably at Wheaton. But Wheaton really also taught me how to think like a pastoral theologian. Um, I learned that critical reading and life experience and discourses on the faith had to come together, had to come together. Um, and that's still, uh, that's still how I think today. Now, there are certain topics that I had to read on my own the decades after uh, Wheaton, like feminist and womanist theology or critical theory or the queer theory of the time. But, but the basic idea that intellect and practice come together have followed me all of my life. My evangelical side also taught me that loving Jesus means serving others. Uh, and that wasn't primarily just the listening skills of pastoral care, but also social action and outreach ministry. So I was 19 or 20 years old, and I was, I was going to change the world, right? Right? But it didn't take me long to have this idea of serving others complicated. Uh, soon after my baptism, I spent a semester of college in an international, uh, as an international student at Daystar Academy in Nairobi, Kenya. And I worked once a week at a kindergarten in the Mathari Valley slums, and I studied with students from nations uh, all over the continent. And, and that was the first time as a young person that I realized that my baptismal call to serve the world might actually be more colonizing than caring. And it was the first time that I really felt what it meant to be white uh, and to be an American. 
that my faith was not universal and ideal like that sticker on the front of the candle, but particular and contextual. So it's not too surprising that my little baptismal candle is still stuck in a soapstone candle holder I picked up in Nairobi all of those years ago. And that the base of this holder is actually too big to hold my dinky baptism in place. So my baptism leans to the side a little. It's a little off balance because it turns out that my baptism is not sufficient for the size of every context. That's the first time I learned that. But over the decades, I've lived and traveled overseas and worked in diverse environments, but I seem to always need to relearn this basic lesson about cultural humility and teachability. And so it's part of what I teach. Not that we learn it here, but we begin to learn to relearn it here. That faith and service cannot be sustained in the abstract, but are expressed through context, history, and privilege, and that we must decrease so that we do not colonize the increase of Jesus in somebody else's life. So there's my precarious, decentered, slightly jaundiced baptism. And we could stop there, but if you took the candle off the shelf and examined it a little closer, you might notice that it's actually broken in half. Some, somewhere across the 27 years since I've been baptized, who's counting? I broke my baptism. So my baptism is actually held together with scotch tape. And, uh, and it's little edges and fringe on that stained glass sticker. Uh, and in fact, actually, if you examined it even closer, you'd notice that my candle isn't just broken, but also slightly bent from where it melted a little in one of my many moves, which I continued every two or three years after my graduation. So my baptism has a little curve in it from when I really hit bottom, when I was living in a friend's RV parked by her house an hour away from the Nevada border with a handful of boxes overheating in the garage, one of which held my melting baptism. So over time, my baptism's got a little rough around the edges. And if I could make up a story about when it actually broke, I would say that it was somewhere around my time working in a women's shelter. So I had spent about a year in Tokyo, unhappily working for a sales office, but deeply involved in the expat church there. And it's then when I felt a calling to serve the Lord full time. But I didn't know if that was supposed to be social work or ordained ministry. So I came home to California and I started working for a domestic violence shelter. Now, I had done rape crisis hotlines in the past. I had been a speaker about date rape uh, and uh, sexual harassment in the high schools and colleges. But this was a real complete immersion. Uh, I learned case management and counseling on the job in the midst of impossible injustice and violence. Uh, and I was reading, I was still reading into these questions because that's what I was taught at Wheaton to do. Uh, but I felt like what really attracted me 
were the stories the women had about their faith. That actually their baptisms were much, much bigger than my baptism had ever been. And so then I decided from there to go to seminary. So I taped up my ailing baptism and I went to seminary in New York City. I interned at a church in the city for two years and a parish in Brooklyn and then a rural parish in northern New Jersey and entered into PhD work to try to work out what happened when my baptism broke. In ministry, we work with people like that, right? We work with people whose baptisms are worn and particular, chinked and shaped by the changes and chances of their lives. And isn't that why we do it? When I, first handed, when I was first handed that baptismal candle, I began to form my life to its faith. But over time, my faith uh, became formed to my life. It became richer, less ideal, vulnerable, fractured, and transgressive as it aged. And isn't that why we do it? So I have a lot that I want my students to learn, skills, theories, frameworks. But I want, what I really want them to learn is that they don't learn it all here. What I really want them to learn is to think flexibly, with compassion, with self-reflexivity and humility, expecting transgressions into whatever they were hoping for when they first received their candle. Because we come here to change the world. But as you all know, it's also wise to realize that through God's grace, the world begins to then change us. And that perhaps if we accompany others with humility and teachability, we can co-create from our equally broken baptisms a different vision for the world.